So I'm, I'm basically the dictator of GGPOT 2. Mostly benevolent. Mostly benevolent, I think. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. Hey everyone, Data Stories number 67. Hey Moritz, how's it going? Good, good, good. How about you, Enrico? All fine? Good, good. Stormy day today. Stormy in New York. It's um, yeah. depressing uh, and rainy it's in okay. Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's Expected, right? Six months of fall. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, any, any news? What are you up to? Uh, well, teaching time here. Mm -hmm. So... Quite quite happy with my new version of the course. Uh -huh. I'm planning to write something about it soon. So hopefully sharing some ideas I have with the world. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, but mostly focusing on teaching because it's the start of the semester. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. pretty pretty normal. How about you? I saw some some new stuff from your side. Good. Yeah. I mean, the year slowly kicking in. Still like launching a few things from last year. Um, so the last few days, we, I was busy in launching Project Uko. It's a wind visualization about wind predictions. Quite nice. nice. And yeah, it kept me busy. Like um, over the last year, it's a collaboration with Future Everything and scientists at uh, in Barcelona and at the Met Office in England. And we look at how we can visualize seasonal wind forecast like forecast for the next winter or a forecast for the next summer how the wind will uh -huh. change probably it's a very probabilistic thing it's all just playing with distributions and rough tendencies wind is very hard to predict uh -huh. and the visualization tries to give you a sense of that and tries to highlight the spots where the most interesting developments are so oh, regions where yeah. we have a lot of wind to start with and strong changes so have you been working with statisticians Yeah, um, so the, uh, I don't know what the, the official job title is, but these are like climatologists probably or like geo people. <laughs> and mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they are really good with, of course, simulations and uh, probabilistic models. And so the new thing about this um, prediction is that they actually have a physical forecast model that takes into account the physical state of the world, you know, at a given point in time and then tries to extrapolate from that. And okay. that's, yeah, it's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I was trying to induce you to talk about statisticians uh -huh. because we have a, uh -huh. a special statistician today yeah. on so the show. That didn't work so out. But. It didn't work out. It <laughs> was worth time. a try. Yeah. yeah, well, I tried, I tried. <laughs> so we have the creator of some hugely popular um, R libraries. So today we're going to talk about some of these libraries and R in general. Uh, he created ggplot2, one of the most uh, popular uh, data visualization tools in the world, um, to get, as well as many other very interesting libraries. We have Hadley Wickham today on the show. Hey, Adley, how are you? Hi, guys. How are you? Good, good, good. Very, very happy to have you on the show. Um, 
it's been it, it was about time so um <laughs> I don't know how much we need to say about you, but normally what we what we do is we ask our guests to introduce themselves. Can you um, tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and um, yeah, and a little bit about your work? Sure. So um, I'm Hadley Wickham. I'm the chief scientist at our studio, which uh, basically means I spend all my time developing stuff to make people more effective in our so I'm, I'm broadly interested in uh, data analysis, so how you can turn data into knowledge and understanding and insight and the kind of the boundary between the, the human and the computer. So how can we like, develop ways for people to think productively about the different parts of a data analysis and then once they've figured out the, what they want to do, how can you efficiently turn that into code and then how can that code go away and do the stuff that you wanted to? Nice. So um, I think I would like to start directly from talking about ggplot2 because, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, our podcast is mostly focused on visualization. Yep. And, uh, and I think everyone knows, uh, I think ggplot2 is one of the most popular things that, you, that, that comes from, from, from your work. So can you briefly describe what ggplot2 is uh, just for, the, for, for, for those few listeners who don't know what it is? And... Um, yeah, and maybe you can you can tell us a little bit of the story behind uh, ggplot2. Yeah. So, so ggplot2 is an R package for uh, plotting. Uh, but what's different about it is it's based on this idea of the grammar of graphics, um, which was originally proposed by Lee Wilkinson. And the thing that's special about the grammar of graphics is that it's about, instead of saying, like, here's, like, a list of charts or a typology of graphics, like, this is a pie chart, this is a line chart, this is a double y-axis line chart, this is a line chart with a bar chart. As you would have in Excel, right? Exactly. So instead of just having this list, which is, you know, which is great if the, if the one chart you want to create is on that list, your life is easy. But if the thing you want to do isn't on that list, you're, you're completely stuck. So the idea of the grammar of graphics is instead of giving this list of things to give all these little small components that can be combined you know, pretty independently to create many different types of graphs. So the idea is if you use ggplot2, you're not limited to all the types of graphics that have come before, but you can kind of create variations that are specifically tailored for the, the, the challenge you're trying to solve. So can you tell us a little bit about how everything started? So how old is ggplot2? Uh, that is, I'm going to have to look that up because I always <laughs> like, forget. A, a, a few years, it's, right? <laughs> it's quite old now. I'm going to, it's, I'm just going to look it up because it's probably going to disturb me how long I've been working on this for. <laughs> uh, but let's just look it up. Here we go. The first version, wow, the first version went to CRAN in 2007. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is nine years. Nine I think, years. Oh, yep. yep. I think ggplot, not ggplot2, was around for a year or two before that. So so I'm, I'm totally ignorant about that. What's the difference between ggplot and ggplot2? So it's actually, yeah, it's a really <laughs> interesting question. So the, the thing, so basically the ideas are exactly the same. But in ggplot, I was really into functional programming at the time. And so the way you created... Uh, more complex graphics was by composing functions. Oh, okay. So in ggplot, you layered things together by composing functions. In ggplot2, I overrode the addition operator, so you made complex graphics by adding things together. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, the thing that's kind of interesting is that I've recently come the full circle which with, with dplyr, which is 
basically a grammar for data manipulation, it also works by the way you compose together multiple steps is by composing functions. But you pipe them, huh? Exactly. But I discovered that in R, R is flexible enough. You can actually write an operator that kind of allows you to, to change the order of things so you get the, the nice properties of function composition, but it's easy to read um, in the way that ggplot2's sort of addition is. So if I'd invented the, if I discovered the pipe, you know, back then, there never would have been a ggplot2. It just would have been ggplot, which is nice because then it would work seamlessly with all of my other packages that I've been writing <laughs> recently. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of the same logic people might be familiar with when coming from JavaScript, like jQuery or, or D3 use that quite a bit, that you would do a couple of function calls yeah. in sequence, and each function call passes on the result to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's funny because it's it's a very natural model of, yeah, describing what should happen in sequence. But I think it's it's only been popular for um, last few years, really, except for the Unix pipes, right? The way you would do that on the command line. But all other programming languages wouldn't really use that uh, the type of pattern. Huh? Well, I'm sure Smalltalk did it. Yeah, yeah. So how did you how did you decide to do to create ggplot2? It, it it mostly sort of came out of um, frustration, which is mostly <laughs> driven by <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good start. Yeah, <laughs> like drives ninety percent of my software development. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, used, development. I used to use um, Lattice, which is, um, that was kind of the main plotting package in R at the time, uh, which came out of the work by Bill Cleveland on uh, trellis graphics. And like, it was a lot better than the, so R is like many different plotting systems. The simplest is base graphics, which is basically, you know, like draw a line here, draw a bar here, draw some points here. And then Lattice was built on top of that to support this idea of, um, trellising where you want to do different plot you want to do the same plot basically with different subsets of your data and i just like i used it and i got quite good at it but there were things that just seemed like way too hard like there's some types of legends that were really difficult to do and then there's just this sort of like inelegance that you you could call like xy plot which would normally do a scatter plot but you could change one of the arguments and make it do a box and whisker plot and that just sort of seemed like so theoretically unappealing to me and it's sort of about that time i was also reading lee's book on the grammar of graphics and that i sort of and i was that i mean the thing at the time was if you wanted to actually use the grammar of graphics the only way to do it was to buy some like insanely expensive like you know forty thousand dollars or something software system mm -hmm. and i was like oh this seems like it could be a fun project for my phd to try and do this in r so <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the grammar of graphics has been developed by leland wilkinson right what in the mm -hmm. 80s or something like that yeah i think the early 90s i think oh early 90s okay yeah so and uh i mean ggplot2 is used i guess by uh ridiculous amount of, of people. I don't know if you have any, any estimate from your side. Um, and I'm pretty sure that you have some, some interesting stories behind it. I mean, I, I guess you've been observing to some extent what people uh, do or did with, with ggplot too. So do you have any interesting stories about that or particularly interesting, um, I don't know, success stories or visualizations that, um, I don't know, had, um, interesting, outcomes or something like that i don't know now now my kind of theory is that like your your statistics package or your visualization package 
isn't successful until it's been used to allegedly commit uh, scientific fraud. So <laughs> I, I kind of like if you if you go to Michael Lacour's homepage, oh, it just yeah. has like the most beautiful ggplot2 graphics <laughs> on it. I'm like, well, that's that's kind of cool and it's kind of terrible. <laughs> they look pretty time. good. But, yeah. Um, so and I, I mean, I think that that is you know one of the the the, the downsides of visualization right that you can make very you can make things that are very very aesthetically appealing and and kind of emotionally compelling and then there may be people are less critical of them than they would be of you know very ugly ugly charts but i mean the, the thing i love about ggplot2 is, is kind of not the the big like things that you know like things in the new york times or whatever it's the 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 people that are using it to like solve some yeah. like weird like the tiny problem in their scientific domain which like i have absolutely no interest in and there's probably like you know 30 people in the entire world who care about it but they care about it really passionately yeah. and um i don't know i just really like that sort of enabling these people to un understand what's going on with their data um another story that i have that i just found out about I'm, I'm going to um melbourne next week to visit Di cook who's my phd advisor and now at, at monash um there's going to be a, a conference with the conference is called wombat um <laughs> which i think might be a clever acronym but it's about um, visualization and understanding data but um die found we're going to go to a cafe because she found that the cafe is a blog and they use ggplot2 to understand their, <laughs> their sales and stuff so I, I just think that's like really fun and um really exciting so i like to sort of talk to people who it's got little, like little small scale problems, but you know, an aggregate. People are doing lots and lots of really interesting stuff with ggplot too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's one of these tools you can recommend because it seems I, I don't use it really, but it seems to have sane defaults because every like ggplot uh, uh, ggplot two plot I see seems to look okay at least. So. Yeah. <laughs> right and so yeah. th did you put a lot of work into the defaults or did you just try and keep it minimal and just avoid any any basic mistakes uh, like what, what was your approach there i mean the defaults i think i, I spent quite a lot like defaults are really really hard because you can never you can't have one default that's right for every situation right, right. but i think it's really really important and i because i think the other thing is one of the things that draw people to use ggplot to initially is because just like the basic plots are aesthetically pleasing. Like you can, you get like kind of a, you know, a decent looking plot right off the bat without you having mm -hmm. to do anything. And, and, and you get that experience before you kind of, you learn any of the benefits of ggplot2 having this deep underlying theory. So, I, so that was, that was very deliberate and, and people don't always agree with my aesthetic choices, particularly the <laughs> gray background with the uh, white grid lines. But um, I love that. I do it all the yeah, time myself. Me too. <laughs> I, I and the thing I do the, the one the one benefit that that I really like is that a default ggplot2 plot is very visually distinctive. Yeah, so you can, yeah. I can spot it easily. Yeah, yeah. There's some branding yeah. aspect almost to it, exactly. which seems yeah. like you know. It's very minimal, but there, there is some sort of brand to it, which is interesting. Not not that many library have it that strongly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And even recently, there's some I think like some new visualization packages that kind of like cargo culting it by like copying the gray uh -huh. background and uh -huh. white grid lines, which I, which is also you it's know, that's, on. That's, that's yeah. flattering. <laughs> so I'll choose to take that as a compliment. Yeah. yeah. 
No, but I think it's interesting to see that there are there are quite a few. When I think about successful data visualization solutions out there, you always find solutions that are somewhat aesthetically pleasing, that have some sensible defaults, but at the same time they allow. Um, a lot of flexibility if you need it, right? So I'm thinking yeah. about D3 as well, which of course is very flexible, but also yeah. has a lot of really, really good defaults, right? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of Tableau, which of course is um, much less flexible, but still some degree of flexibility and the defaults are amazing as well. Yeah. So this seems to be a very, very good formula for visualization. Yeah. So, but um, I really want to get an opinion from you about what do you think distinguishes between libraries or tools in visualizations that are successful and uh, widely adopted from those that just die after a while? So do you think there is some kind of, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's a lot of factors, right? But if you yeah. would have to pick a few factors, if you had to suggest to a person how to create a successful data visualization library or tool, what, what would be the first, say, two or three factors? I think this is something like really important about the ecosystem in which your visualization system is embedded. So my, my experience is really like often, like once you've got the right data, in the right format, aggregated in the right way, the right visualization ju just kind of happens. Like in, in many cases, like the visual, like the visualizations is the very, very end of the project. Mm -hmm. And once everything else lines up, often that visualization just, you know, happens pretty naturally. Or, or even if it requires some struggle, it's nothing compared to the struggle of the rest of the pipeline. So, and, and I think you can sort of see that on, in, in my work too, you know, I started off in, in visualization and over time I've just expanded my scope to kind of include more and more and more of that data pipeline. Um, so, so I think, and, you know, and, and that's where I think D3 is successful because, you know, lots and lots of people are using JavaScript. There's lots of ways of um, getting your data into JavaScript and Mike's done some projects as well with, um, I guess like, is it cross filters sort of in, in browser database stuff? Tableau, you know, has invested huge amounts of money making sure wherever the data lives in your organization, you can suck it out. I mean, th those are the things that I think kind of, like, ironically, the, the success of a visualization project is all about the non-visualization stuff. It's like getting the data to the right place. Because if you can't do that, you just, you're kind of dead before you can even begin. Yeah. And I guess, I mean... I think another aspect is also being able to build a community around the tool yeah. itself, yeah. because um, I've seen so many tools that you, I mean, every time you choose to, to, to invest in a new tool, um, you are running the risk that this tool is not going to be there in a few yeah. months or years, yeah. right? Yeah. So being able to build a community around it means that you can ask to people, um, whenever you have a problem, you can ask to a large community of people, right? And, yeah. and again, I think this is true in your case, it's true yeah. uh, with D3 and so on, right? But I guess it's also a huge amount of work. I mean, yeah. it's not just that you you code something up and then it's done. Yeah. I guess it's really a lot of work, right? Yeah, well, you could see like 10 years. <laughs> I've been working on ggplot2 for 10 years. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it takes a long, it does, I think the other thing is it takes a long time to, to get momentum and it's sort of funny because the, so the other reason that ggplot2 exists 
is because at the time there were like, you know, a, a hundred people using ggplot, which I was like, oh my God, a hundred people are using my package. That's, <laughs> in, that's in, incredible. And so I didn't want to break their code. And so that's why I made like a completely new package instead of replacing the old one. And the irony is now that like I, I do a release and I make the tiniest change, like or even if it's fixing a bug, but now there are like a, a 200 people who relied on that bug and mm-hmm. I... Like it's just that. Are they starting to complain because you're fixing it, or? Yeah, I guess (laughs) some of the. It's just like it's hard. Like I look at ggplot two and I see like this clearly doesn't work right. Don't use that. Like this thing that that does that's a bit weird. That parameter seems unusual, and so I just never use those bits. But of course, no one else has that insight into ggplot two, and they use all these bits, which I think are yeah ill-advised and then i then i break them because yeah. I, I i break their code by doing what to me is fix it improving ggplot2 uh-huh. um so that's that's kind of the 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 price it's also a little you know ggplot2 sort of had about a, a two-year hiatus when i was working on other problems and um you know people sort of complained that like nothing was happening but the downside is when things start happening again, then I will like things start breaking in your code, which, you know, that that's, it's, I don't know. There's <laughs> I, I, people, un, I think people generally under also undervalue stability. Yeah. Like things aren't improving, but there are known workarounds and people know how to deal with it. But when I start kind of developing again, even if it's fixing bugs that inevitably causes problems for someone else. So it's always sort of like a trade-off, like you, how, how trapped do you get and kind of design mistakes that you made a long time ago and lots of people rely on, but you think it, you know, a bad idea now. It's a bit sort of a, a, a challenge of doing software development when you've got a lot of users. I mean, how do you manage that process? Is it like, are you, let's say, the lead developer for ggplot2 or the only developer? Is, do you do people come to you with requests and you make a decision what to include or not? And how does that uh, usually work? We also had one question from Gaming Dude on uh, on Twitter. If there are any specific ggplot feature requests that you just will refuse out of principle, things like this. So, so there's some curiosity how it works, and I'm curious too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm basically the dictator of GT42, yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly benevolent, yeah. mostly benevolent. It's a valid model for for many projects, I think. Yeah. And and you know, ggpot 2 is like is very stable at this point. So there are only kind of small stuff going on. Uh, most of the the feature tracking goes via GG, uh, goes via GitHub. So people will submit mm-hmm. issues if they find a bug or, or want something new. Um, and you know, while I wasn't working on ggplot2 for a long time, those issues kind of accumulated. And at one point, I just declared GitHub issue bankruptcy <laughs> and basically closed every single one of them with an apology. Everything's um, resolved. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, uh, which, which which actually turned out, I think, to be the right thing to do because when I came back to it, it just wasn't this overwhelming yeah. wall of problems. I could just pick you know a few small things and, and get traction on them. Yeah, I you know I tend to be. What I'm trying to do recently is try to be as realistic as possible. So if if if, there's, if the chance of me ever fixing this is small, I'm just going to close it right away and say, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't do it. Yeah. You know, I'll review a pull request if you want to do that, but otherwise, no. I mean, you know, there are some things that I would like that 
will I will categorically like never allow a ggplot to like uh, double like multiple y axes. I, I think that's a really really bad idea. So there's like no there's no way that'll ever happen. But you know most of the most of the requests are things like I don't have any problem with. I just don't feel any passion for them. So I'm like, well, if you want to do that, you 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 can do that. But I'm not going to. I, I think one thing that has been really that is that I should have done a long time ago is that the the latest version of ggplot2 has a uh, extension mechanism mm-hmm. so you can now uh people can write their own packages that build on top of ggplot2 and right. add their own geoms and their own stats and stuff and that has been i should have done that there's just been like an explosion of people creating these these neat extensions like mm-hmm. things that i i would like you know i think that i think they were really cool but i would never have the time to do them um there's actually now there's even a web someone's now made a website to it's uh, see if I can find that quickly. But let me out. I'll, um, it, it's really like cool a repository of all just... the or a directory of all the extensions that are around. Yeah, exactly. I'll um, it's ggplot two dash exts dot github dot io. Yeah, I mean that's a good idea. That puts a lot of like of these specific requests from your shoulders, right? At the same time, you have to keep it more stable than your own API and can't just like exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's exactly. only for very mature projects, I guess, to to make that transition. Yeah. I'd like to move it a bit to the general R ecosystem, the discussion. So, how is it? Like, let's say somebody says that sounds all really good. I'd like to use ggplot too. Do you have to use R? Like, is it only works inside R? Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So basically, you're buying R with, or it's free, but uh, you have to yeah. sort of get <laughs> get started in R in order to use ggplot too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about R for those people who don't really know? I mean, you know, many will have heard of it, but maybe people didn't really check it out yet. So, what is R? R is a statistical programming language, which was written by John Chambers and others at, at Bell Labs, which is really designed as kind of a statistical glue language. This was in the era where, you know, all your computations were done in Fortran and, and C, mm-hmm. and you just needed something to kind of, you know, string the output of one routine to the, the input of the next one. And, and, and that, that was the vision for S. Mm-hmm. Uh, R was, and, and S was basically, you know, owned by Bell Labs and they, they kind of commercialized it. And then R was an open source um, kind of derivative. It, it shares a lot of the same. It, it's very, very similar to, to S as a language. There's a few important differences. That was written by uh, Ross E. Harker and Robert Gentleman at the University of Auckland uh, in the early mid-80s, I think. I forget the exact mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. But. Wow. And, and R, so R is like a, a language that's designed for statisticians and people interested in data. It is definitely quite different to other programming languages that you might have used. Uh, and definitely has its quirks, but I very, very strongly believe that, like at the heart, R is like a very beautiful and and well designed language that that's that's very well equipped to deal with the problems that you that you encounter when you're trying to work with data. And and I think because of that, and the, just the rise of the importance of data, it, it, the the popularity of R has been skyrocketing in recent years. So it, you know, depending on which of the programming languages rankings that you believe. Uh, and some of them I really don't believe. Like the IEEE has one where it ranked like R is like the ninth most popular programming language, which 
I would kind of love to believe, but it, it <laughs> seems implausible. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's definitely in like the top twenty programming languages, which is, which is still kind of mind blowing for me for a language that you know ten years ago was a very specialized language that only people with PhDs in statistics used, and now it's you know it's it's everywhere. Every you know Google has thousands of people using R, Facebook has hundreds, is you know Twitter, Uber, every tech startup you can think of as people using R. Yeah. It's used in New all York the York Times uses it extensively. Exactly. Uh, Amanda Cox yeah, is a huge R fan, of course. And, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's incredible. And how, how would you say, like for let's say the R um both the environment but also the the community, like how would you characterize that as opposed to let's say other types of communities? For which type of people will this be the right thing? Like in in your feeling so it's a language for a statistical computing right do you feel you have to know statistics well like what all the the statistics terms mean like is everything very technical so. in in description or do you feel it's also okay for designers who want to get more into data analysis yeah i so i think like at one level you know it is fairly technical there's a lot of things that only statisticians will care about But on the other hand, and people will probably laugh at me like for saying this, but it's it's also like PHP. Like mm -hmm. it, you, it's it has everything in the kitchen sink in it. Right. Which, and you find a lot of snippets you can just copy and run, and whatever exactly. they do, they do the right thing somehow, and you can move on, right? Uh, exactly. And yeah. you don't have to become like a an expert in programming languages to understand what's going on. You can kind of piece it together on your own. And I and I think that that's kind of really powerful, and there's you know there's now a lot you know Stack Overflow has lots of answers, and there are lots of people all over the place who are willing to um, answer your R questions. Right. Yeah, I, I think what is really interesting. I mean, the way I use R is pretty pretty basic, but most of the time, I think um, one of the most powerful aspects for me is that it's so easy to load a new data set and start playing with it. Right. Yeah. I think this all. Uh, interaction loop where you 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 write a statement and maybe it's wrong, but you write the next one because now <laughs> yeah. you know how to fix it, right? Yeah. And another aspect that is amazing: every single time I use R and I get stuck into something, I search something in Google, and here we yeah. go. I mean, I just, <laughs> honestly, I mean, I don't even have to understand the the the, yeah. the statement. I just mm -hmm. use it, right? And and that's unbelievable. I think it's a it's an um, Amazing characteristic. Mm -hmm. So it's a step by step, trying something out, see what happens, try the next thing, and that keeps you going, basically. Yeah, because when you think about what kind of tools exist out there for just data manipulation, mm. uh, they are either too rigid or you need too much uh, programming, right? Yeah. So I think R is very much in between where you can, as I said, you load a data set mm. and you kind of start playing with it, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, and you have the summary function, for instance, that gives you an overview of what are the attributes in your table, what's their distribution, and so on, right? And it's just one single statement, super, super easy, right? And yeah, and so on. So I think it, it is very powerful for visualization, but even more powerful, the more powerful aspect from my point of view is, is data manipulation, and it's very, very much needed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that, that I spent a lot of my time on that last year just making sure it was as easy as possible. You know, if your data is in Excel or, or SAS or XML or JSON or, or, or whatever, just making sure you can get that into R as easily and as, as painlessly as possible. Because, you know, if you, can't, if you can't get your data in, then 
you can't do anything. It doesn't matter how awesome the rest of the stuff is. Yeah, and a lot of your recent packages focus on data reshaping and data massaging and aggregation. Mm -hmm. You know, and this. Yep. Let's let's have a big table, but let's slice it up in different ways and merge columns. You know, this these types of things we do as we explore data, or as you say, prepare it for data visualization. Yeah. How, how do you pronounce it? Is it Playa or Deep? Deep plier, Deep yeah. the modern one, yeah. Uh -huh. um, I, I think, I mean, to me, like, it's tidyr that's the more interesting because tidyr basically, like, this is a philosophy. This is how you should store your data. And the principle is really obvious, and it, it kind of sort of astounds me. It took me, like, six years to figure this out. But the principle is you put your variables in the columns and you put your observations in the row. In the row. <laughs> that's brilliant. Uh, and, that, and, that's, and that's basically no, but it really helps <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's basically like Cod's third normal form um, mm -hmm. expressed in sort of statistical language. But like, like once you have that, like that, that's like how you should store your data. And then it's also like how should people design APIs to work with data in R? Because once you've got that consistent way of like variables always look like this and observations always look like this, it's much much easier to design tools that you know where you're not like trying to ram the output of this function and the input of this other function and um, just so everything goes. so you, so you like the, the my goal is so that you focus on the data analysis you're not like eventually the r your fingers just kind of like type r code without you thinking about it just flows out of your fingers it's just completely like subconscious and, you know and i accept that that's still a long way away from most people mm -hmm. uh, but 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 at least like there are problems like that that happened for me where the, just the r code kind of flows out of my fingers and everything just works and you know that and that that, that happens for me now like after 10 years of more than 10 years of programming in r and um you know, writing lots and lots of packages. So, so one cool thing I did uh, yesterday, which turned out, which everything just lined up and worked, was I did a visualization of every place I visited in the United States by looking at my TripIt data. Do you mm -hmm. guys know about TripIt? Yeah. Yep. Really nice, so you yeah. basically, TripIt's this cool service. You just forward them all of your receipts and then they generate like an itinerary and build up your calendar and everything. It, it's really awesome. And it turns out they have an A, and I've been using that for like, eight years or something. Oh, nice. Um, and it turns out they have an API. And that API uses OAuth, which is an R package you can talk to. And then you can pull that down, and then you that gives you this sort of nested tree. And then recently I've been working on this per package, which in this context basically makes it easy to turn trees into data frames. And then you do a little bit of data manipulation on that, and then you plot it with ggplot2, and then pretty easily... Um, pretty quickly you get a, a plot of everywhere I've been in the, U, the US. And it, it just like, and that took me like, you know, 45 minutes to do, which is, which is pretty cool, I think. And it, I don't know, like it just when everything lines up like that, it's still admittedly unusual for me. So I, I realize that for most R users that, that does not happen very frequently, but like, that's what I want to want, what to be happened that everything just flows it works mm -hmm. kind of naturally you might have to learn a few new ideas like this idea of tidy r of variables and columns observations and rows but once you've got that idea like the the, the code is, is much easier to write this is a good time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week so once again data stories is brought to you by click who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories 
And one good reason to download ClickSense right now is to take part in the Click Open Data Challenge. And the winning data is created with ClickSense would earn $10,000. So I think uh, there could be good reason to participate. And the idea is to use free public data from datacatalogs.org on issues such as the environment, population, education, health, to create an app in ClickSense that not only analyzes this data, but also inspires people to take action. I love these contests because you see so many different solutions to the same basic challenge, right? So for instance, last year's winners um, showed the human impact on the planet, talked about adoption in Brazil. There was a school navigator for Italy. So all kinds of interesting things. And that really shows how much you can do with public data and how much you can learn about the world and how we can inspire people to uh, take action on important issues. And again, if you win, it pays really well the first three prizes. And that might be an extra motivation to put in a few hours into that. And in addition, of course, it's a great way to get started with a new tool you might not have as much experience with, uh, such as ClickSense. So check it out. The link is in the show notes. And we are really looking forward to see what the submissions are. And um, yeah, thanks so much again to Click for sponsoring us. And... Back to the show. So many people are interested in um, learning R from scratch. So do you have any suggestions for people who are who wants to start, but maybe are a little intimidated? They don't have a lot of programming background or even zero programming background. Um, what, what do you suggest? I think like the, the meta suggestion for learning anything is always to find like something that you're you're passionate about and interested in and, and then like don't just say like I, I want to learn R so there's this problem I want to solve using R I think that's a, a great way to get in um, I'm also working on a, a book called R for Data Science uh, with, mm -hmm. with Garrett Grohlmund uh, like all of my recent books that's available for free online so you can actually see me me write it so I think if you if you, it's just R for ds.had.co.nz um, it, it's still there's some really good chapters and there are some chapters that have like three sentences in them. But um, <laughs> I, I think it's a, that, you know, this is, that, this is what we're trying to do. Like this is, these are the packages that we think, these are the things you should know, the packages you should learn that are going to make you as effective as possible, as quickly as possible when you're doing data analysis or data science with R. So are there any, say, tutorials or... Yeah, then there's, there's lots of other great online stuff. Um, the Johns Hopkins folks have a Coursera course that a lot of people have found really helpful. Uh, DataCamp is a new company. Um, they have online tutorials for R with videos. You have to pay for them, but they're generally pretty high quality. There's actually there's a neat R package called uh, Swirl. So Swirl actually tries to teach you R inside of R by giving you this kind of little interactive exercises and then checking your results. I used that. That was quite nice because it's, it takes you by the hand and it's very yep. easy. And so I, I had a good start with that. Yeah. Those are the things that, I mean, there's also just like so many books now and the, the books are like getting really like specialized. So like, you know, if, you, if you're in, it's like R for forestry science and R for fisheries and, uh -huh. you know, anything that you can name, there's a book about using R for it and then, you know, heaps of good tutorials on the web. Yeah, yeah. But I'd like to come back to this idea of like all these packages, how they come together. It seems like 
you have a certain philosophy or a certain idea of, about data and, and how to best work with it. And then all these packages, they follow that paradigm. And once you understand yeah. your basic way of thinking, it yeah. all ideally falls into place, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, exactly. So you have a certain idea of how to make tools and, and then each tool yeah. you can easily pick up and it's a hammer, it's a screwdriver, but you know, it's a Hadley hammer and a Hadley screwdriver. Yeah. So you, you have an idea. So can you tell us more about tool making? Probably you thought a yeah. lot about that like, and how it's different from other activities or academia also and, and so yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I do find out like when someone asks me like what I do for a job, like just in an ordinary context, I'm like, well, I don't really, I don't really do anything. I like make tools that other people use to do data science. Right. Like it's, it's very meta. It's sort of a, right? yeah. yeah, it's a you know, I do a little bit of data science, but mostly what I spend my time is is, is doing is building tools. And I don't know, like a lot of it. I, I think one of the things that's interesting is like this. Like there's things that I, I know and I can do really well, but I can't describe what I know or how I do it. And like this tidy data idea for like a very long time, I could look at a data set and say, do this, do that, and do this other thing, and it's going to be much easier to work with. <laughs> but I could not tell you like what principle I was following. Mm -hmm. and, it, and so when I like tried to like start teaching this at Rice, I was like, well, this, this isn't very satisfying if I can do it. And I know there's like some underlying principle but I can't explain it. So, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so there are like some sort of like simple things that, that I can tell you about, like, to, like, you know, consistency is really important, like figuring out how to be so that everything, like once you've learned one example that you can generalize that to, mm -hmm. to new cases. I mean, the, you know, there's sort of like this, like making, you know, a lot, a lot of my work is like these grammars or where you provide like little building blocks where mm -hmm. each building block is simple. You can easily understand it in, in isolation and in the way you deal with complex problems by chaining lots and lots of these, these little problems, little things together. And, you know, I spend a surprising amount of time just like trying to think of good names for things. Like naming, <laughs> naming things is really, really hard. And but especially it's so software packages because yes. people have to type it over and over again. So the name, if you come up with like a stupid name, it's gonna bite you really bad. Yeah. And one of the like I think the the things, the sort of testimonials that I both most enjoyed about Dplyr was someone tweeted to me how they were showing their uh Dplyr code to their PhD advisor who has never programmed an R and their PhD advisor could actually understand what nice. the code did. That's great. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's like great. that that like expressing yourself in code, I think, is, is code as a communication medium is a really, really important thing. And it's you know it's hard, but it's sort of a worthwhile struggle. And yeah, and it's sort of interesting because I mean in a way you are designing a product. I mean it's an open source product and it's yeah. a software like a library product so it's a bit different than maybe what you would think of as a product in the first place at the end of the day it's yeah. a product and you make all these decisions about the the communication around it the branding as you say the yeah. how it actually works uh, how big it becomes or how small it stays and so on and so you do that now at R Studio. What is R Studio? Mm -hmm. Is it like is it a company? Is it a club? Or is it what, what is it exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I just know it's a software product you can download and and use it to to interact with R, right? Yeah. So R Studio is a company. Um, we have kind of three main product. Well, two main products. Uh, the IDE, 
which you can both kind of download and use on your computer or you can run from a server. And then we also have um, Shiny Server, which allows you to make um, or serve up Shiny apps, which are just a way of basically turning, instead of creating a static PDF report, you make an interactive web app to show off the results of your analysis. So our studio is, you know, an open source company, which means, you know, our, our goal is to make do as much as possible in the open and then find the, you know, small percentage of features that big companies are willing to pay a lot of money for <laughs> and charge a lot of money for those features. Um, but, 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 I, and I think that, that, that so uh, to me, like our commercial products sort of so around solving two problems. So the first problem is like, you've now got a team of like five or 10 or 20 people are all using R to work on problems together. How do you make that team of people as productive as possible? Right. And then the other problem is like, you've done this fantastic visualization or report or shiny app on your computer. How do you then push it out to the people who actually need to see that? How do you solve this sort of last mile of data analysis problem? Yep. And you know, that that's working pretty well for the company so far. So, you know, I, I, I joined our studio because I, sort of passionate about the vision the goal of our studio is not to make money mm -hmm. uh the goal of our studio is to make great software for the R community and you know as hopefully a, a happy coincidence make money as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but but the you know the, we're the we're not opt the goal is not to optimize income it's to optimize mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of awesomeness for R. um so i i i i, I don't know i'm really excited about our studio as a company and and working there and it's it's fantastic so uh, hadley so if i understand shiny a little bit um uh, that's also a way to introduce some degree of interaction in 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 exactly. in ggplot right so can you can you tell us a little bit more about what is your view on interaction and uh, how much of a limitation it is in um in in r and and ggplot yep. too yeah, inter I mean, interaction is sort of interesting and challenging because there's like so many different levels of interaction. Because at some level, like to me, R is an interactive environment. Yeah, but absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It's not that if you are typing things, I mean, when you type something, you are actually interacting with with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think there are, so there are some things that are very, like difficult to express in code. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at a plot and you see a point and you're like, that is a weird point. Yeah, I want to find out exactly. more information yeah, about yeah. it. It's, a it's tip, very, right? very natural to yeah. like, you know, you want to touch it. You want to say this point is the one I'm interested in. Yeah. Right. But to express that in code, you're like, well, X has to be greater than this and Y has to be less than that. And <laughs> that, that's very, very, so there are things that are very like, that are difficult to express in code. Or then the other sort of thing is like you're designing a, like, you know, you, you, you want a label to be here instead of here. Yeah, there are some things that just feel so natural. You want to like directly interact with them and, and, and drag them and move them around the screen, right? Or it's you the know, the Brett Victor dream, right? That you do something directly on the representation. It feed, feeds back into the code, and you can exactly. sort of go back and forth. Yeah, so we're hard. Still, <laughs> it's hard. It's really yeah. hard. <laughs> we're, we're sort of, I think, just getting, just sort of, still dipping our toes in the water. There, um, there's a cool new. Um, our studio feature called and shiny feature called gadgets and add-ins which so traditionally so you know traditionally which is funny to say about shiny <laughs> which has only been around for a couple of years but you know most shiny apps In the old are used to communicate to like non-analysts so the type of interactivity you provide is basically you you say well instead of giving you this 200 page report i'm going to give you like three drop downs and two 
mm-hmm. to check boxes, which would allow you to generate anything in that report. Mm-hmm. So, so mostly shiny apps are used, you know, the, the, anal- the data analyst, the data scientist commu- creates them and then a, a non-expert uses them. And it gives them sort of some, some like in a constrained environment to explore where you can't do everything, but you can do the things that you're most interested in. The, the things that's really interesting about gadgets is that they kind of sort of flip that around. Like in a gadget, a shiny gadget is a tool that a data scientist uses or a data analyst uses. So you call it like a regular R function, but it pops up an interactive window in R Studio. And the thing that's, that's sort of, I think, particularly innovative about these is that you can then, so you can interact with that. So you can select that point. And then what the gadget will do is it can like return an object to R. It could return like Mm -hmm. a a vector of trues and falses, which you can then compute on, or it could actually generate the code for you and then kind of insert that into your R console. Mm -hmm. Because like one of the challenges of interactivity is like, how do you capture what you did so you can replay it again in the future? And I think we're going to see like, so this, this idea that there are some things that are hard to express in code but you, you want to express them in code so you can capture what you did. So instead of you writing that code, have the, you, know, you interact with the data and then the computer generates the code for you. And maybe it's kind of long and ugly, but that's fine because you didn't have to write it. But at least you've captured mm-hmm. what you've done. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of, sort of innovation in that space. And again, it's for like these little, somehow like not, not like when you, when you sort of look at, look at like Infovis projects, it's like their interaction is like everything. It spreads throughout yeah. the and, the, and, and that, and that can be incredibly powerful, right? Because you can, you can do all of these things so naturally and flexibly and iteration speed is so small, but you're in like a closed system. And if you want yeah. to do something, the outside of that, you just cannot escape. Whereas I think like interactivity in R is going to be like lots and lots of little interactive pieces where you call upon an interactive tool to solve a specific challenge, and then that kind of feeds back code or R objects into your workflow, and then you continue on. So you have this sort of mix of writing code where that's most natural and then interacting with the data directly where that's most natural. Okay. Um, So is it currently possible to just use R and create something that is interactive right away? Yeah. Oh, okay. So then that's basically what... I mean, the other way of looking at Shiny is as a way of like very quickly creating web apps. If you don't know anything about HTML or JavaScript or CSS, um, you can use Shiny to, to put something together pretty simply that, that gives you this basic interaction. And then we have these HTML widgets, which are basically kind of wrappers around common JavaScript libraries. So for example, there's like a leaflet uh, leaflet is a JavaScript package for drawing maps. There's a leaflet R package, which lets you do anything you basically anything you can do in leaflet, but it's all wrapped up in, in R code with an interface that's natural for R users. So if you know how to use R, you can now create very easily create these beautiful drag and drop maps. Uh, and, and I don't know that it, it just makes everything so easy. Like it, I, I think it's sort of getting to the point where if you know, even if you know quite a bit of JavaScript and a little bit of R, it's actually easier to do it in R because just all of the sort of infrastructure is like wrapped up <laughs> in a convenient way. Um, and I, I guess that's kind of like another, like coming back to the question about making successful 
you know, software, successful visualization tools. It's like thinking about that sort of infrastructure, pain, like just getting everything installed and working, that can be a huge pain too. And like investing time in that so everything just kind of works regardless of who's running it on what crazy system. Like that's really painful and annoying work and it takes a long time to track down all these subtle bugs. But just giving people a tool that they can, you know, use and deploy reliably and instantly, that that's incredibly powerful too. That's true. I mean, if if all these parts go together by design, that, that can make a huge difference. And yeah, I do a lot of web development, so <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, NPM and so on. Um, yeah. Yes. I think we need to wrap up soon, but I'd like to come to a few listener questions. So we had a few comments from Twitter. And mm -hmm. maybe that also leads to a few like thoughts on the future. So we had two people. Thomas Peterson uh, asked, "Is a gram of interactions is it doable?" And Sven Erik uh, Schelhorn also asked, "After graph, uh, grammar of graphics, which was GG and data player, uh, will there be maybe mm -hmm. a grammar of models based on Kuhn's carrot package? Whatever that is, probably you know." <laughs> so. <laughs> First observation is, of course, people expect a few more like grammar-based uh, yes. packages from you, so they seem to like the the general idea, apparently. Yeah, I mean, and I think people do like this this idea of like um, you know little components that you can join together. You know, you're not locked into my vision of of what you should be able to do. I, I think is is really right, powerful. Right. Um, I mean, a grammar of interactions, I think, is is totally possible. Um, Jeff here and his student um, Arvind Satyanarayan um, have had a really nice paper in Infovis, I think, last year or the year before last. I mean, the the key idea, I think, is uh, functional reactive programming, mm -hmm. which is a kind of idea that came out of the functional programming community, which is all about you know, functional programming, if you're really hardcore about it, it's all about eliminating side effects. But but basically all of visualization is a side effect. <laughs> um, so it's, but so the, the, the functional programming community came up with some sort of interesting tools to kind of get around that, that, that make it easy to reason about. So this idea of um, uh, functional, pro functional reactive programming is a, is a way of effectively kind of declaratively specifying how things should change and this this sort of is how shiny works too you you effectively have like a graph of components and when one component changes it does the the minimal amount of recomputation to update everything else mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think um arvind and jeff have a really nice uh paper about that i think that's like that just seems like such a natural way to attack this problem because it gets you out of all of this kind of I mean, the, the, the phrase is call back hell. Um, we've just got things calling back and you have, you just can't reason about what's going on and you get these subtle bugs. And if you do this and that, and then the other thing, it breaks, but if you do it in a different order, it's okay. And it's, it's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so I, 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 that is something I want to work on for uh, GGViz, which is the successes of GGPot2 that I'm spending a lot of time on, on this year. But would that be mostly like a software refactor or w would it be... Like because the question was for gram of models or interactions, do you think it would yeah. apply there? Like, do you think it, it yeah, could work well to structure so a gram of models like this? Yeah. So I think this will apply for a grammar of interactions. Mm -hmm. A grammar of models is a little different, and something. And I don't really have a good grasp on what a 
grammar of models is going to look like. I, I think it's really important, um, but I'm not quite sure yet how it, it, it's going to work. But basically, the idea is, you know, you, it, it's like like visualizations, right? You have this huge, like this. I mean, basically, we're currently in this place where we have a typology of models, right? There's a list of models. Like, do you want a linear model? Mm -hmm. Do you want a generalized linear model? Do you want an elastic network? Do you want a lasso? Do you want a random forest? Do you want this? Do you want that? It's like a pie chart, line chart, or a bar graph. Exactly. So it's the same situation again, right? So exactly. I can see the so, thinking, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it seems like there's got to be some way of, of, maybe not for every single model, but for a useful subset of all models, putting that into a grammar so you can build up a, a model as you go from simple pieces. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think my feeling is that the statistical theory isn't quite there yet, that there isn't the sort of overarching theory that lets you do inference on all these different problems. But um, that is something that I would like to work on, although it's unlikely to be for a year or two yet. But I, I think that's, like when you look at what I haven't done and uh, that's kind of one of the few <laughs> things I haven't even touched in the slightest. So I, 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 I but it's just a big project and it yeah. requires a lot of like maths, which I don't have and yeah. I'm not particularly Seems sure. Seems like a big own. challenge. <laughs> I'm just reminded of Donald Knuth's books. Like he's like at book, I don't know, four or something Yes, out of seven. So maybe you are now starting package number three, grammar number yeah. three. <laughs> it might yeah. be a lifelong process, right? I, I mean, I think it will be, but hopefully I won't have to retire and then keep working for like another <laughs> 20 years and still only have be halfway there. But. So Hadley, before we wrap up, can, can you give us a glimpse of the near or far future? So what's, what's coming up next? So next, um, basically, I'm going to be working on dplyr. There's just a whole lot of bugs and a few minor stuff that I want to finish off. I've been also sort of thinking through this problem of like, you know, often when you when you start fitting models, you end up with a whole bunch of models. Yeah. And so how do you kind of keep them together and organize them and store them? And I now think it's pretty natural to put them in a, in a data frame. Um, so I'm just like slowly considering all the implications of that. And then once that's done, which will hopefully be about a month's work. The rest of the year, I'm going to be spending on, on GGVers. And, and that, I think, that's going to kind of explode into lots of, there's going to be like GGStat, which is high-performance C++ implementations of common statistical transformations you want for visualization. There'll be GGGeom, which is like a, a data structure for dealing with the geometric objects that underlie visualizations and efficient C++ code for manipulating them. And then GG layout, which is some way of sort of thinking about how you lay graphs out and an efficient C++ implementation for laying them mm -hmm. out. And then, <laughs> and then sort of thinking more about how the JavaScript works and do we need like other backends and other, because one, I mean, one of the big things with GGVis, one of the big unsolved questions is that, you know, Doing graphics in the web browser is awesome until you want to stick them in your PDF paper. So there needs to be some way of also turning GGVis graphics into static graphics that mm. you can put on a website or put in a paper. And just thinking through that, how that's going to work is is quite a big problem. But I, I think I have a, like at, at least in my head, I have sort of a, a vague strategy. I know I've forgotten lots of important things where I'm going to be like, oh, wow, that's like totally not going to work. But I'll, I'll, I think I can push through those and you know i'll have like eight months to work on it this year so that's what i'm really working on and i'm just gonna a whole lot of other 
projects will just drift into a state of benign <laughs> neglect while I work on that. So. <laughs> So I think it's clear you always have a few balls in the air and you're just uh, <laughs> juggling a lot of projects. Uh, but it's amazing like what you were able to put out and, and also I think the impact it had. We like to talk about impact and how... Oh, absolutely. You know, how the things we do change the world or not. And I think in your case, <laughs> you, you did have quite a quite a bit of impact and that's, that's, that's great. And yeah, we're looking forward to following... Uh, all the, the new packages coming out. I'll try and do more R. It's one of the things I look forward <laughs> new year to, resolution. to dabbling with. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And yeah, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. It's been super amazing. You're welcome. And thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Adli. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. I also want to give you some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, And we now also have a newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox, go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link that you find on the right. One last thing I want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest way to improve the show, amazing people you want us to invite, or projects you want us to talk about. So do get in touch with us. That's all for now. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash datastories.